Welcome to Stockholm Food Movement Podcast, part of Sweden Transition Podcast Series. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they decided to do things differently and explain why. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I'm very pleased to meet Jürgen Andersen. Jürgen is a regenerative farmer and founder of the Savory Institute Nordic Hub. To feed our global population and meet our climate emission reduction targets, we know we have to reduce our meat consumption. But livestock integration can play an important role, such as building soil health to sequester carbon. Today, we will talk about regenerative agriculture and understand what holistic management means. We will discuss about the specific experience of mountain grazing in the north of Sweden, but also discuss more generally on food and transition. Hi, Jorgen. Welcome. Hi. Thank you very much. Sweden in transition believes the world needs urgent reinvention. Yes, I do think we need reinvention. I believe as well we are in it, whether we like it or not. Historically, we are so new on this planet as a species. And we are really new at what we're doing right now, being billions, trying to figure out how to live on this planet properly. So to me, it's going on and it's just a matter of taking part. Tell us more about who you are and how you came to do what you do today. I am a farmer. I'm brought up in a very conventional kind of farming from the sort of south or central south of Sweden. Agriculture culture is really in my my blood. Somehow I got very interested in everything about sustainable development from from early age. I do remember I got myself a beehive. It's like 14 or 15, and they really taught me a lot about the wholeness of things. Bees are really so connected to the surrounding, trying to sort of figure out how that works, really inspired me. But as a farmer, it was a, a big revelation uh, encountering with uh, this holistic management the, to give words to the thoughts that I may have had for a longer time, to realize that there is already people out there in the world and they are talking about a, something that, that is holistic management. Can you educate us on what conventional agriculture is and yeah. maybe what are the failure or what are the drawbacks of doing farming as uh, most of people do at the moment? And what is organic farming and what is holistic farming? I can talk about a specific book by Yuval Noah Harari. It's pretty famous. It's called Homo sapiens, a brief history of humankind. And he gives an understanding of what really happened We are domesticating plants and animals, which means putting them into a house. But this guy, Yuval Noah Harari, he has proper perspective. It is actually wheat or those plants who are putting people in the house. So we as a species became domesticated by wheat and some other of those carbohydrate-rich plants. It was like it wasn't our doing, in a way. Almost mathematical reasons, the people who started to to help these wheat plants, to help them thrive on the planet. Those people had more children and they became, even though they became more sick, because since agriculture, 10,000 years ago, we've been more sick. So even though we had a not as nice a life, we became more. So the agriculture people thrived in numbers. We were sort of bound to end up being this many and being caught in this society that we have today. Every step that we've been doing seems logic, and we have been trying to help these plants thrive and try to make them the only plants in the field. It's been logic to go towards the monoculture, even though it hasn't been wise. 
be in control of things, trying to be in control of this super complex thing as nature and as agriculture. We are simplifying it. We are looking at nature, looking at our fields as a farmer, as if it is something that we can control. That's the most reductionist thing I can think of. It's only five years since I got this aha moment that this mineral phosphorus that is very important for, for everyone, called the P in the NPK when we are feeding our plants with, with nutrients. I learned, like everybody else, that we have a big problem because phosphorus is going to run out from those African mines. So how are we going to survive in the future when we have no more uh, fertilizer to put on that way? Plants have been growing for millions and millions of years without anyone putting on any fertilizer or digging anything in any mines. At some point, someone was successful in selling an input, which was this fertilizer. And then uh, science and the whole system of agriculture has just adopted that claim that we need this, this fertilizer. No one is questioning it. So now doing that late in life as a farmer, daring to think that maybe we just don't need it. Maybe it's not a lack of a nutrient, it's a lack of biology, it's a lack of life. We are treating our soils in a way that biology is being reduced or, or life is going away. That's one little thing among many that is completely turning everything upside down. Everything I thought I knew as a farmer has to be turned upside down and it's, it's a very embarrassing Yeah. You mentioned uh, monoculture and fertilizer. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are the two drivers of industrial farming. Yes. How this industrial farming is depleting life in the soil and making it non-resilient. Organic farming is about getting free of chemicals. What about organic? From my point of view, it has got this origin from this guy, Rudolf Steiner, and this anthroposophic movement. They didn't want to put any, any poison into their body. They are very sort of human-oriented. So it was not as much about uh, having life in the soil. Comparing it to what I'm now into, the, the regenerative or the holistic thing, I, I, ca I can see small differences between organic and conventional farming. There are farmers being conventional, being way more, doing it way better than some organic farmers are doing it because they are looking at how can I help my life in the mm -hmm. soil. Organic, it's more about not doing harm. I understand that regenerative agriculture is about doing good or at least enabling natural systems to take over yeah. and regulate itself. It is about enabling the highest imaginable vitality of an ecosystem, letting more than making, letting this vitality happen while satisfying human needs effectively. I still haven't found any good argument why there should be a conflict between a vital civilization and, and vital ecosystems. Can you give us a specific example of how nature is well done and regulates itself in terms of soil vitality or preventing disease within mm -hmm. a crop? Well, there's so many. Let's have this thing of gravity. Everything comes down. And so is the soil. Even in nature, soil is sort of sliding down the hill towards the bottom and, and ends up in the sea. When you're doing agriculture, you're trying to prevent that. It may seem minor, but it's actually pretty big force, which is that the grazing animals, when they are laying down to, to ruminate, they want to be higher up in the, on the land. So they tend to walk down the hill and collect the grass, and then they will unload that manure on that top of that hill before they go down again. So they do a lot of work 
carrying that soil back uphill. Same kind of things are going on in, in the oceans with the whales are, are carrying sort of materials in that way. And, and the way the salmons were carrying nutrients upstream. So this is one example of how life is sort of doing the opposite of things like gravity is doing. And is doing it in a beautiful way. Uh, and we just don't see it. We tend to see that if there's no smoke coming out from the diesel engine, there's no work being done. Nature is doing work in a very silent and smooth way, but it's, it's big work. Nature is the big, the big one, the big force. Tell us what is uh, the Savory Institute and what holistic management is about. This man, this amazing man, Alan Savory, who is, has given the name, figuring out or trying to figure out these things for his entire life, and now he's up in his 80s. Uh, he's a biologist from Zimbabwe, a true nerd for nature and simply tried to figure out how to reverse the trend of eroding nature and land in, in Africa. Why is the land going into desert? He, as everybody else, was convinced that livestock, that cows and sheep are a bad thing for the land because it's obvious. You can really see how cows can devastate the land and he was just one of them seeing that. One of the first people, not maybe not the first, but he really made a big job trying to put this knowledge together. Grazing animals, if managed properly, they, they are managed properly by nature itself, as things were before we were here, because then this ecosystem was thriving. Being poorly managed, as we are doing it now, they can really do harm. What does it mean in terms of farming practices that are radically different? Looking at our ecosystems and looking how they used to be. I mean, how, how did nature design them without Homo sapiens being around, then there was a lot of open land, savannas or that kind of land. There would be trees, but there would be less trees than we think, because as animals went away, you know, like 50 to 30,000 years ago, the trees came in and the forest came in. So now we believe that is more of a natural state of things. So to understand that it's a very productive state of the ecosystem to be this half-open land, but the grazing animals are maintaining it. This is a key on the majority of the land. It has been the natural state to be a grazed area. And then you have the rainforest, where it's so much rain, so it will be forest. Whatever the animals do, it will just go to forest. Mm -hmm. But the, um, the biggest ecosystem of those times was the mammoth steppe in the northern part of the planet. Huge area, very, very productive, where today we have a lot of forest which is not a bad thing, but it's not as productive or as sort of vital as that used to be. So that is holistic management, trying to figure out how to mimic that system where the grazing animals and the, the life in the soil are in synergy with each other. As well, those regenerative uh, farmers, they will have a few principles like never leave the soil bare. That's one of those things. And it's pretty obvious, you know, it's really bad for the soil to be without any cover. But that's what we see everywhere. So it's kind of a disaster going on everywhere where we see all that bare soil. Mm. It's just opened up for erosion and for temperature swings going high in the sun and low in the in, in, in night. Avoid tilling completely. And make sure that you have a lot of growth going on on your land from as early as possible and to as late as possible. And you can have living roots all year round, even under the snow, you can have life going on. You can have that system be awake and, and running. So one way of, of answering that question is that back in the days when we were opening up those pristine grasslands, 
we were getting a really high yield. We could just go in with the plow. We can get, wow, all this nice wheat or whatever it was we were growing. So we were just sort of mining that land, mining that high, that super alive soil. And we just didn't really realize that we were degrading them. So when you have this vital, good soil, you can get a number of good yields, seemingly. But now when the soils are degraded, you cannot do that anymore. Now you need massive input to maintain a high yield. So now it's economically viable to regenerate most soils anywhere. So it's super embarrassing to be a farmer and to realize that we are wasting money everywhere, getting low yields with low quality and degrading this resource base. That's what we're doing in general, because we just haven't figured that. You know, you need to sort of get that aha moment. Another principle is articulating livestock. Integration. The cows are working for you. They don't send you an invoice. They just do great work. You know, they are ecosystem builders. Those big ruminants are that. And what's happening is, is from two ways. From the individual farmer trying to increase vitality of the system, it tends to be more and more species, way more species of plants, and then even as well way more species of animals as well. So... It sort of wants to be egg production as well, because those hens are doing a great job spreading that manure after those cows and, and keeping uh, the pressure of parasites low. And the value of hens in the pasture, even before they give you any eggs at all, they have paid for themselves because they are increasing the production from the cows. And then you just find a place for the pigs to you know, move in to do their jobs. As soon as the more you understand, the more you want to have a diversity to increase vitality. And from the other end, the people who are starting to understand the value of this food being food produced from soil that is alive is something else. And they would like to have more species or more sorts of food as mm -hmm. well. It's, uh, it's working two ways. So we are really moving towards more people being on the land doing more kinds of enterprises on the same, same land, or stacking enterprises on top of each other. But it needs to be connected to consumers being close enough, wanting this to happen. I mean, it's a different taste of an egg, just the, you know, the psychological effect. If you eat an egg when you know that these hens have had that kind of a good time, as well being beneficial even before they laid an egg. And when you know that wildlife in the area will thrive, the more cows you have, the more you know, livestock, domesticated livestock are enabling wildlife and those things to just come back because we should be so ashamed of how we have sort of killed all the all the wildlife on the mm. planet it's just it's really really terrible to illustrate can you tell us about the mountain graze project and okay, how yeah. this work so this was something that that we started in back in 2002 and the swedish word fjällbete which is mountain grazing and the context of this area, which is Åre, which is a tourist area, which is sort of almost like the tourist area for fancy Stockholm people to go skiing in the wintertime and in the summertime as well. And they've been doing that, for, doing that for 100 years. So this has been a meeting place with the poor mountain farmers and wealthy Stockholm elite people. So the context was that we have this thriving tourism in this valley. And that tourism is talking more about providing you know the contrast to everyday life of course you need to have some local food and some local you know why why eat the same stuff as you would eat back in stockholm and then having a almost extinct uh, culture of agriculture in the same area 
and I found this very interesting, very sort of intriguing to to move in and try to start something. And this is what we did. Making those stakeholders, being restaurants and hotels, part owners of a new company that we own together. We were starting with lamb and are still doing lamb. So that hotels could serve the, the meat from the same slope that they've been skiing in the same days uh, at night. Mm-hmm. They can eat something that had been produced on that particular slope. And that way is simply trying to get this relation going between end consumer and, and the production. Coming to some uh, conclusions about how important it is, how uh, new enterprises are financed. So if you can make your market or your consumers or your, you know, your partners, if you can make them your, the people who are financing you as well, then you're building a very strong unit. Recently, I am convinced that we can make food at a lower price than the industrial kind of food if we have a good enough alliance between the consumers and the producers, reducing those costs for marketing and make sure that we are paying for life in the soil and people having a good time making good food. How do you react when you hear that uh, we should eat less meat? And what is uh, your strong belief? I don't like to tell anyone what to eat. I think it's becoming more popular now. We're saying it's not, it's not the cow, it's the how. So you can do really terrible things with cows. And you can sort of build paradise with cows as well. How could you say that cows are bad? You cannot. When you say it's not the cow, it's the how, the problem with meat today is that most of the arable land is dedicated to feeding industrial livestock. It's more this industrial way of making meat that is a problem rather than meat itself. Yes, you're right. When you want to make a successful business, you're looking to buy something really cheap and to sell it at a really high price. And if it takes a lot of marketing, but you really get a higher price, then you're a good business you're considered a good businessman doing that so when you look at it with those eyes and then you see what what and then you go you walk into the supermarket and see what is being sold here and and the first thing you will see is it's a lot of sugar because that costs next to nothing and people just like it you know (laughs) and then you have the starches like wheat flour and, and those very popular things and now they have you have the vegetable oils And then you just put them together in most cornflakes or cereals and all those things. They are amazingly priced if you compare to what you actually pay for those for that grain. So that is why we are having that kind of monoculture on such a lot of land. And then another way of trying to make something out of that almost free tons and tons of starch get that way is to put them through animals. Me being a, a grain farmer... We even talk about it, we, when we talk about making uh, bacon or chicken, we are talking about it as a kind of grain, you know. Uh, we are piggifying the grain. And then comes the ethical part. We are mistreating our animals in such a terrible, terrible way. What is specific to Sweden? We have a very specific context in Nordic countries. It doesn't look as bad here. We, can, we are mistreating, we are mismanaging our land here as well. But... The rain coming all the time just covers that up in green, and so we don't see it. So that's the difference. When it comes to the distance between the, produ- the production and the consumption, we have an opportunity, a potential to connect consumers with their primary production. It's interesting with this connection with tourism as well. When people come to my mountain area, they love it. They are giving themselves time to appreciate nature during those days being on vacation. So I would say that Sweden has got some interesting 
opportunities that way to create something that I, I'm using the word lagum because it's a reuse of the old Swedish word that means something that works for everybody. We need to sort of make it work for everybody. So, Are there inspiring examples that you've seen through the network elsewhere in the world? That oh, yes. can- of course, you have when you go to Africa. So I've been to our sister hub in, in Kenya. And then you have the Maasai country and the Maasai's They've been sort of moving down to Kenya in relatively recent times with an extremely strong pastoral culture. But they have not understood how cows are damaging the land because they didn't have to as long as they were not as, you know, not too many. And they could move around, and they, could move they around. can't yeah. do yeah. anymore. But they are threatened as a culture, as a people, with the way they are managing the cows. So when you see the Maasai people realizing that we can save our culture by understanding uh, holistic management, by understanding how our cows can benefit the land and how our cows can benefit the wildlife. And actually what's going on there is it's about saving the land from commercial farming because the alternative in that area is to grow corn and things in a way that's just devastating for the land by improving the way that they are herding the cows in a way that is making that grass come back then they have the viability to compete to outcompete the commercial farming uh, with or without tourism as an, as an additional you know revenue from from this and where you can go and see their cows and lions at the same day you can see them together as long as you get your cows away for night inside these little little pens so when they are planning they have a holistic plant grazing in that area the ecosystem can bounce back from having, you know, going to desert. So it's so beautiful to see how quick wildlife comes back. Just the productivity of an ecosystem is just unbelievable. So when you see such things, and then you just imagine what can be done on this planet, carbon being the, the building stone for life, it's kind of amazing that we have been able to, to limit nature to the extent that we have an excess of carbon in the atmosphere. And as soon as we are uh, no longer preventing life, life is longing for itself as, and it will be done quickly and when you see places like that you know it's possible that's a nice way to optimistically uh, conclude can I ask you a last question about what inspires you you mentioned a couple of books yeah. do you have a, um, something else that you want to share or a quote I, I really like this supposedly African saying or I learned it from, from Africa which is I am because we are. If there is no we, there is no I either. And if you do good to the people around you, which and if you want to do good, really, then you need to do good to the nature as well. And then there's a book. There's an, a, a woman called Helena Norberg-Hodge. She wrote a book called Ancient Future. It's about Ladakh, this far northern Indian territory, how people were not, not until the 70s integrated into the global economy, uh, learning that they were poor people. They didn't know that before that. How it sort of, sort of destroyed their culture that they have been building for thousands of years through irrigation and simply making things work with a, with a limited uh, resource being the water flowing through a place where there never rains. So it's a lot about how we need to get along people with each other and we need to learn from that. We are strange Western people. Thank you very much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Thanks a lot to Jorgen Andersen for this conversation and thank you all for listening. Stockholm Food Movement is an independent podcast. You can support it by sharing or adding five stars on iTunes so more people can discover it. Check out also when the next meetup is taking place at the Impact Hub. See you soon. Mm -hmm.